When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When that person comes walking down and they're going to pitch you, imagine they're in your office and they're pitching you and just give them the exact attention and just the same set of questions that are come to your mind. You do this in your sleep. You're here to evaluate and ask the question. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger, and today we're talking with Kevin Harrington of Shark Tank. Kevin Harrington is the originator of the infomercial. He's been on Shark Tank, of course, but he started businesses starting from age 15 after working in his dad's restaurants. Today, we're gonna hear about the evolution of an entrepreneur, somebody who really relies on networking and relationships to get it done, and some tips on how to pitch, as well as to pitch yourself and create relationships. Lots of really interesting stories here in this episode with Kevin Harrington. This guy has been in business for a long time, his own businesses and helping other people with their own. So he's seen a lot, seen almost all of it, create a lot of iconic products. If you're around age 40 or so, you've seen this. He has created entire industries and really just been creative with the way that he gets things done. So there's a lot to learn here with Kevin Harrington. And don't forget, we have a worksheet for today's episode so you can make sure you solidify your understanding of all the key takeaways discussed here today. That link is in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. Now, let's hear from Kevin Harrington. It's funny, we were talking pre-show, you're from Cincinnati, which I think people say this is the most northern, southern city. Is that the reputation that it has, or was that? Yeah, you know, it's, people will sometimes say, it's, I have sound like I'm from the south, but the others will say, you know, like east, you know, got a little east coast in me too, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's eastern time zone, and it's um, kind of far up, you know, northwise, but then it's right next to Kentucky and Louisville yeah. and all that. A lot of good whiskey and tobacco farms yeah. right across the river. Yeah, it's kind know? of funny. When you drive through Ohio, you just go, this state is enormous. You know, I'm from yeah. Michigan, but I'm from north of Detroit. So okay. I leave Michigan in 20 minutes, maybe 45, yeah. depending on traffic. Cincinnati, if you want to go up through to Toledo or something, I mean, pack a lunch. There's not much pretty scenery. No. <laughs> when you were a kid, you worked in your dad's restaurant, eh? Yeah, yeah. So my father was a restaurateur. He had bars, restaurants. Irish pubs, you name it. I joke, you know, how do you become an assistant chef at the age of 11? Well, my father owned the restaurant. When the chef didn't show, I was assisting my father in flipping the steaks, you know? So, <laughs> you know, I learned the very early age being an entrepreneur in the restaurant business, you know, had its set of challenges. So um, that was just one of them, people not showing up. Then there was people stealing from me all the time and all that kind of stuff too. But yeah, I had a lot of fun working with my dad for many years. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you learned early on that you have to wear every hat in the business as a business owner. My wife's aunt, she owns a Chinese restaurant and we said, oh, what are the challenges in your business? Getting customers? She's like, no, the challenges are I'll hire someone new, they won't show up, or I'll hire someone new 
or somebody who's been around for a long time and I'll go, where are the 30 pounds of prime rib that I ordered for the restaurant? And they'll look at the security cameras and four days ago, somebody came into work, stayed 20 minutes later and hauled off with it, threw it in their car and brought it home for their barbecue. When I worked there was before the security camera days and my dad one time was like, why is the chef taking the garbage out? Right. So he followed him out with the garbage can and he lifted up the top bag in there and there was a pile of steaks in the garbage can because, you know, the chef just never took the garbage out. Little things like that that you got to pay attention to as an entrepreneur. Right? Did you take those instincts with you then into business? I mean, how could you not take them? Absolutely. I grew up a Catholic boy from Cincinnati and, you know, altar boy and all that good stuff. So I was sort of trusting until I got into working in my father's businesses because the chef was stealing steaks, the busboys were stealing knives, the bartenders were stealing cases of liquor. You know, it was just like, you know, you had to be there 24-7. So eventually I just had to take the attitude that, you know, you almost got to just not trust anybody until they prove themselves trustworthy. That's good that you say that because I think most people you hire are going to be maybe not all-star employees, but are probably going to be more or less trustworthy. Not everybody steals, but that small percentage can cost you so much money that it makes you a little bit jaded. Yeah. When I finally got into the Asina TV business, one day my auditors came in and they said, hey, what are you selling for $1,000? And I'm like, nothing. We sell $29 yeah, night ab, sets. Ab crunchers. Right. Stuff, ab yeah. crunchers. Right. So they said, well, last month you issued eight $1,000 credits. And I'm like, really? I said, who did they get issued to? Oh, well, looks like the same person. Okay. So one of my girls in accounting started at $29 credits, but when people return their product, somebody had to authorize the credit of their credit card processing, right? Sure. This girl, we found out it was over $200,000 over a six month period. Wow. But she got more aggressive as she got to month six with $1,000 credits. It was $30 credits and then $100 credits and $500 credits and $1,000 credits. And it was to herself and friends. And anyway, it was just a terrible thing. But somebody that was sweet every time I saw her and, you know, you never think that they were stealing you blind behind your back. Well, obviously you remembered a lot of these lessons over the years. Do you find it hard to change your perception and trust anybody? Because it sounds like you can't not do business because people aren't trustworthy. But you also don't want to treat everybody like they're a criminal because you'd be a terrible, horrible boss to work for if you just assumed everybody was out to rob you. Yeah, I think anymore today, what I try to rely on are better systems, better controls, smarter people at the top that I can trust. And generally, I have my son working with me and top notch. I call it a SWAT team of of help at the top level. These are people that I know well, I can trust them. And then they rely on their instincts to handle the people underneath them. So at the end of the day, I think even though I still say I like to give people the benefit of the doubt, (laughs) recently we had somebody that had access to a debit card and was taking a thousand dollars out every day (laughs) cash, right? Until we found out, right? So this person reported to somebody in finance and that person in finance just wasn't on top of things the way they should. So getting the right controls is, I think, one of the key lessons here. It's like trust, but verify, I suppose. Exactly. Well, when you first started, you were knocking on doors, meeting a lot of people. What was your first business? I mean, I know you were basically still a kid. Yeah. So 11 years old, worked in my dad's restaurants for a number of years. And when I turned 15, I said, I want to start my own business. I started a driveway ceiling business and I lived in Ohio. So 
it would get cold in the winter. So if you had a crack in your driveway. By the way, if you're not from a cold place, you get cracks in your driveway every year. There's a new crack. A new crack. You can count on it. So I would go knock on the doors at 15. I drove around neighborhoods on my bicycle and I take them out. And I say, see that crack when the water gets in there and it gets cold and it freezes, it's going to be triple the size. Right. They're like, I know how ice works. How much money is this yeah, going to cost me? Right. I was selling driveway ceiling and I'd take a picture before and after of a neighbor's driveway. And, and we also beautified the driveway too. So we sure. sealed it, beautified it. It was a magical transformation. I had a picture, I had a neighborhood referral, and we were doing 10 a week at the age of 15. So I actually had to buy a truck. I couldn't drive the truck, but I hired a guy that was 16 to be able to drive. So there was weeks we were grossing a thousand bucks a week and you know netting probably $700, give or take. So pretty sure. nice because this is now back in the 70s. So in today's terms, multiply by three or four or five. And, you know, it's a pretty lucrative little part-time business, you know? Right. That was 15. Then I was in high school, but that was part-time because it was only seasonal in sure. the summertime. And then I said, wow, what can I do year round? And I thought, well, everybody has heating and air conditioning. So I started a heating and air conditioning company. So that was in my year of graduating from high school into college. That business became a pretty nice little company then. I definitely want to ask you about that. I do want to point out, it sounds like a very familiar formula though, to ride by, see a problem, fix the problem with something simple and quick, and then have the magical transformation. Sounds a lot like what you ended up getting into later. Look at the before picture and the after picture. Before picture in black and white with a little line through it, after picture in color, look how much better this looks. Looking at the HVAC business, this is kind of specialized. It's not something that most 16-year-olds are thinking, oh, I can install ducts, air conditioning units. Because driveway resealing, if you're ambitious nowadays, you can learn that on YouTube and you can do it yourself. So what happened is I was sealing the driveways in the summer and I started working for an air conditioning company in sales that was getting a hold of the new homeowner lists in Cincinnati. And they would outbound telemarket all the new homeowners and tell them that they had some kind of a special deal and send somebody out to the home to give them a quote on either a new furnace or whatever. And so right around that time, there was something new called spark ignition furnaces. And up until then, all homes had furnaces with pilot lights. And today you won't see pilot lights in very many homes because this spark ignition came about in the mid seventies when I decided to start my own company. So I was part-time selling for a company. I became their top salesman and I'm saying I'm getting 8% of commission and I'm seeing all the money that they're making. And I'm thinking, hey, I can get that same new homeowner list, call those people and go out and do it myself. So after working for somebody else, I started the heating and air business and it was a pretty fast growth because the key thing was having access to those new homeowners. If you just bought a new home, you were credit worthy. You had one of these old furnaces that was inefficient. So right. what we did is we offered them a free furnace cleaning and a safety check. So we pretty much got into about 80% yeah. of the people that we got a hold of. And then we tell them about this amazing new spark ignition, energy efficient furnace. And of course, very few homes in the 70s in Cincinnati had air conditioning, central air. So we would then, oh, you just bought a $100,000 house. Right. You got to have some central air. I mean, here again, this business went from zero to a million dollars in sales. I had 25 employees, six trucks going out every day, and we were just, you know, really taken off. And again, a million in sales back in the 70s, you know, it was three or four million today. 
you know, we had a pretty substantial little company. I joke, though, that in my day as a young entrepreneur, I started driveway sealing and heating and air conditioning. Today, young entrepreneurs start Snapchat yeah. and Facebook. Okay? Right. So, so, you big know. Instagram influencer, sell an ebook. Yeah, yeah. It's a completely different so, process. It's very humbling to see what's happening in today's world. Although, to be honest, what you're doing is harder in so many different ways and requires a lot of different skills. Not that Instagram or Snapchat doesn't, but the platform's already there. You didn't have a way to sign up for somebody to teach you everything you needed to know about sales, everything you needed to know about HVAC installs. There's no YouTube channel to learn how to stay motivated when you feel right. like crap. You're right. I think it was harder back then than it is now. Let's put it this way. I was 19 years old running this heating and air conditioning business. And never forget the day I got a phone call from one of my customers. We were installing a furnace and she said, you got to come out here right now. And I'm like, what's the problem? You, I'm not even going to tell you, get here quickly. And I get there and my installer was asleep, passed out, drunk with a bottle of whiskey sitting right next to him in the basement, right? And so like, okay, I'm glad I got here before he woke up. There was a whole set of other problems that I was dealing with in that oh, world because I was going to college. So I was a freshman at the University of Cincinnati. And so by the time I got to the office, it was two o'clock in the afternoon. My trucks and crews had been going out all morning. So I had to have somebody in operations running the shop until I got there. I did the sales at night. And at the end of the day, this is why after a couple of years trying to do both, I had to decide, do I want to be a graduate of college or do I want to be an entrepreneur? And unfortunately, to my mother's chagrin, I guess she wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer. Yeah. I ended up quitting school and running the business. I can kind of see that. You're coming home for Thanksgiving. She's asking you when you're going to go back to school. And you're like, well, you know, I could be a lawyer and make 2% of the income that I just made in this other business. But what would you tell your friends? <laughs> your friends are so uh, disappointed. Well, I had two older sisters, one married a doctor, one married a lawyer. I said, we got that covered in the family now. Yeah. So I, I could be the entrepreneur. Yeah. Let me know which lawyer to call when your heater doesn't work in the middle of winter. Tell me what the lawyer is going to do about <laughs> yeah. that. How did you know that being an entrepreneur was for you originally? Because sure, having money at 15 is great. But do you have a story about when you finally realize, like, look, this is what I'm going to do. Sure, I'll go to college because my parents want me to, but I know I want to do this. When did you finally know that that was for you? When I went to college, I'll never forget a class that I went to. There was 800 students in the class. Orientation to business, right? And it was like the big class that everybody had to take that was starting in college. And the first or second day that I went to this class, I'm trying to remember for sure, but the teacher didn't show up and there was a video playing. And he's like, sorry, I couldn't be here today, but take some great notes and I'll see you next time. And I'm like, I'm running a business. I got 25 employees. I'm doing a million dollars in business. I'm here at school. The teacher can't even be here. Right. Why am I here? Okay. Right. So I quickly realized that I wasn't really getting anything out of school that was going to teach me anything in my life mode kind of thing. Right. I went to a business courses. I went to sales courses. The guy that's teaching the sales course was really a teacher, really had never been a salesman. you know. And I was doing sales. I was in the home, knocking on doors, doing telemarketing and you know, having great success along the way. So it was sort of during those first couple years of college. And I'll say this, University of Cincinnati, not to put it down too much, but it wasn't a great, great college for me. I mean, I had graduated in a kind of an advanced program in high school with about 10 kids in our senior year. We had a class of 200, but we had this advanced class of 10. 
that we got college credit for a lot of our courses. And so I went from that 10 kids to 800. Yeah, that's and I'm insane. like, you know what? I'm not learning anything here. I was very challenged during high school, but I, I wasn't being challenged and I love the challenge. So my son, he went to Penn State. He was very challenged. He had a great education. He loved it. And he graduated and came out, you know, with a great uh, college degree. And I'm glad he did have his college education. But for me, I grew up in a family. My father wanted me to be an entrepreneur. So I had kind of his. Oh, he did. Yeah. He pushed me to be an entrepreneur while my mother was pushing me the other way. Huh. So there was a- Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. 
Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. A little bit of that infighting in the kitchen table yeah. at times, you know? But I just knew that I was destined. I loved the thrill and the excitement of seeing the business grow geometrically. I mean, we were selling one a week, then five a week, then 10 a week. And I was like one of the top dealers in the city in my second year of business. And this is in an industry that had people that had been doing this for 40 years. Right. I was going to say everybody else is 55 and you're 17 or yeah. 19 years old. I mean, old. they wouldn't actually give me a license to sell the furnaces. And I sure. went to Carrier and Carrier said, look, you're a kid. You don't have experience. You know, you've never operated your own business. Right. These things are heavy. You're going to hurt yourself. Yeah. yeah. You have to buy through another company. So I actually had to buy all my inventory from one of my competitors. And that was okay because I learned a few things from him along the way too. But after I exceeded his total sales, which happened in the first year, because he wasn't selling air conditioning systems in the winter. I was because we were out in homes doing furnace deals and slapping, you know, discounted air conditioning systems on the furnaces when we installed them. So they were like, how do you sell five air conditioning systems a week in the middle of the winter? One day I had a visit from some of the top executives of Carrier coming over to, you know, is this guy laundering money or what's he right, doing? Right, is this guy a drug dealer? <laughs> you know? He's got a basement full of air conditioning units. <laughs> I knew we were on to something and I loved it. And I wasn't getting anything out of my college education because I really had a much better education in high school. And so actually the year that I dropped out as a junior, but I had a 3.85 out of four grade point average. So it wasn't lack of getting good grades or whatever. It was just time to move on. You're listening to The Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger and today's guest, Kevin Harrington. So stick around and we'll get right back to the show after these important messages. Thank you for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. To learn more about our sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. But for now, let's get back to Jordan and Kevin Harrington. You don't hear that a lot. You don't hear... Well, I did well in school and I decided to run business. You often hear, well, I was terrible in school. Turns out I wasn't cut out for that. I was cut out to be my own boss and stuff like that. And I think that's lost on a lot of young entrepreneurs. They think, well, I hate school or I hate my job, so I should do my own business. And I don't really agree with that. I think if you can excel in one area, you can carry that over. But if you're failing in another area, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's because you're not cut out to do that. It might be, be, the cold truth might be you're not actually applying yourself. Exactly. Knocking on doors is a lot of hustle. Did that come to you naturally? I think a lot of people are afraid to knock on doors, be rejected all the time by different people and continue at it. I had a, you know, worked at my father's restaurant. I also did a little newspaper sales down on the street corner for a couple of years too, where I was selling 10 cent newspapers and getting three cents uh, out of the 10 cents commission, right? And so. I learned early on, my father was one of those kind of restaurateurs that he knew his customers, right? People came because they liked my father, Charlie. He was their friend. He would hang out with them. He would talk to them. You know, building a business in the bar business and the restaurant business, it's a neighborhood kind of thing. People like to go where they're wanted and they're liked and they know they're going to get good service, good food and a free drink every now and then. <laughs> so my father would teach me some of those tricks and of course, introduce me to the friends and so I think I was able at a young age to get rid of the fear factor because I will say this, when I first started knocking on doors, I got 
pretty much a lot of smiles and thank yous, but kind of like the door slammed pretty quickly. And I'll never forget one neighborhood I went into, all the driveways needed my service, but not one of the people said yes. So I literally got 20 plus turndowns of thank you, but no thanks. That'd be the end for most people. Yeah. And I just kept going and going and going. And finally, I thought, you know what? I just got to get one done in this neighborhood. So I finally talked to somebody. I said, look, I'm going to do your driveway for just the cost of the material. I charge a hundred bucks, but I'm going to do yours for $15. You know, I just got to get a job done. So I got one done, put a big, beautiful sign across it, string on the posts and took a before and after picture, went back to the same 20 some people that's told me no thanks. And I got about 18 of them then. So that was the turning point for me as a salesperson. I think the concept here is once you learn how to sell, and I, it was sort of self-taught. I actually did start buying books and the Dale Carnegie's and Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill. And then I started buying Zig Ziglar's materials and, you know, he had motivational stuff and then closing techniques. And so then I really started tuning into, okay, I figured out a few of these techniques, but maybe there's some people that can teach me more. There was someone named Jay Douglas Edwards. There was Tom Hopkins. That's who I learned Tommy from. Tommy Hopkins. And I'm right? listening yeah. to this cassette tape and he's going, my friend Shirley, she's in the typewriter business. And I'm thinking, I'm learning how to sell typewriters right now. The last time I even saw one of those things was in 83. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> So I then became a sponge for self-improvement and I started going to programs and all of that kind of stuff. And I just really enjoyed getting wisdom from other people that were a lot smarter than me in, in all these ways. When I really learned the art of closing the sale, then I could take a 50% close to an 80% close. And that was when I was honing my art. And then I could also teach that to other people. So. The last year that I owned the heating and air company and I decided to sell it, it was very labor intensive. And, you know, that story about the guy with the bottle of whiskey, that was a daily situation I had to deal with and shoddy work and things like that. And so I did sell the company. But the last year that I was in business, I had three full-time salespeople that made a fantastic living selling and I was giving them the leads. And so I now was running the business. I was more you know, of a real entrepreneur instead of a salesman just making some money. Did you ever miss the day-to-day of that business or were you just glad to be rid of it in some way? I honestly never missed that business (laughs) at all. You know, this was the problem. I was great at selling and so was our team. And we'd sell it, we'd install it, but then we had to service it for the rest of our lives. And so, oh, you know, I'm not getting enough cooling in this back bedroom. Well, they never had enough air in that back bedroom. We only put system in there. Now we had to fix all their problems. And then the thermostat wasn't working right and the humidifier, this and that. I mean, the service side, these customers owned me. Believe me, when it got cold and they didn't have enough heat, we would get hundreds of phone calls sometimes from people that needed service right now. Right. And they all had a screaming baby, you know, that was six months old. At the end of the day, a service business like that, you got to be cut out for it. And I was an entrepreneur and I had my success with the business, made the money that I thought was great, but I wasn't enjoying coming into the office every day anymore. And I said, it's time to move on, find something else. What did you bring from school? Because I know you were a multi-sport athlete. You did really well. You were in that honors program or whatever that was. What did you bring from 
school into your businesses because I'll never forget wrestlers, especially. I don't know what it is about yeah. wrestlers. They are just they punish themselves all the time. Yeah. I'll never forget Ralph Franco, mediocre student, jumping rope in the shower with a sweatsuit and garbage yeah. bags on oh, while yeah. the steam because yeah. he wanted to make weight. If that kid took an ounce of that and brought it into his career, he's a millionaire right now. Yeah. I don't know if you know that I wrestled, but I wrestled for four years. My freshman year, 98 pounds, varsity, made the varsity uh, team, which was unbelievable. And I wrestled 98, 105, 112, 119 over the years. That gave me such a dedication and a camaraderie with the other wrestlers, as well as a mindset that I think I applied in my entrepreneurial endeavors. Because being an entrepreneur, the one thing you have to totally understand is you will get shut down. You will get pushed off the ledge. There will be many times when you're going to think you're going out of business and you can't take it. You don't know what to do. And you need that perseverance and you need to be able to get up, dust yourself off and go back at it. In the world of wrestling, when three hours of working out every day was a feat that over time gave me, I think, the mindset to become a pretty powerful entrepreneur. Yeah, I can see that, especially from wrestling. Just there's something about wrestling that is just brutal. It's so personal too. And you kind of can't BS yourself. It's a team sport, but you're the one on the mat at that time. In football, you can say, well, you know, I didn't get enough blockage or the pass wasn't what it was supposed to be. But if you're the one who got their butt thrown down and pinned, it's like, <laughs> you can't look at the coach and go, that guy over there on the bench, man, yeah. gave me the stink eye and it ruined the match. Exactly. It's a one-on-one -on -one, and those three two-minute matches seem to last a lifetime. Sure. So what led to the birth of the infomercial then after that? Because You've got the before and after. That's germinating in the back of your head somewhere. How did we get from HVAC to the ab crunchers with Tony Littles in his ponytail right. hats? Well, thank you. So I sold the business, the heating and air business, had some cash. And I said, okay, now my business is to go find the business I want to be in. And I was looking all over the country and reading all these ads, going to franchise shows, business opportunity classifieds. And literally, I, six months later, I had this tremendous education on all the business opportunities that were out there, but I didn't want to own a Subway sandwich franchise, right? right. You know, be behind the counter all day long. Sure. I wanted to be Freddie DeLuca, the owner of Subway. So what I ended up doing was I said, you know, until I find what I want, I'm going to broker businesses because I had looked at literally hundreds of business opportunities. And so I said, I've kind of educated myself quite a bit here, much more than some of these average people that decide to go buy a business. I mean, as a business broker, I got a real estate license and I was selling the real estate along with the business. So we'd sell restaurants, delicatessens, car washes, laundromats, flower shops. And I called it my curiosity overload days because I got a chance to see the inner workings yeah. of hundreds of companies, their cash flows, their rents, the employee costs, the food costs. I became very educated and I was selling businesses and then providing services to people because I actually called my company the Small Business Center because I put an accountant and an insurance guy and an advertising guy in the same floor. And we said, okay, we'll sell you the business. We'll do your books and records. We'll do your logos. And of course, there were no websites back then right. because this was back in 1980. Flyers. Your flyers, okay, yeah, your, your jingles for the radio, yeah. right? The Small Business Center was this transition for me that kind of put me in as an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. So one day I'm sitting there, I was successful. I had 15 employees and I'm selling businesses and right downtown Cincinnati, having a lot of fun. And I bought a house and I ordered cable TV and 
cable TV came along and I'm, I yeah. ordered the 30 channel package. 28 more channels than you normally got. Exactly. I mean, back then I had ABC, CBS, NBC and one kind of PBS thing. Now I'm watching 24 hours of news and HBO, 24 hours of movies and 24 hours of sports on ESPN. Now you got to remember, this is early 80s when you're getting 24 hours of sports. This is amazing. Today, you take it all for granted. But I went from seeing no sports to being able to watch everything, right? And I got to the Discovery Channel and there was bars on the screen. And so I called the cable company. The color bars. The color bars, yeah. yeah. So I called the cable company and I said, hey, I just got this cable package. I'm excited about the 30 channels, but something's not working on channel 30. There's nothing there. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, there's bars, these color bars, right? So they said, oh, well, that's Discovery Channel. It's only an 18 hour a day network and six hours a day. They don't have enough programming. It's a startup channel. We put those color bars up so you know there's not supposed to be anything, oh, right? Uh. I said, well, why don't you put, we'll resume programming at a certain time, you know? So then the light bulb went off, but wait a minute. And so I went out to the cable company. It was Warner Cable. And I said, I want to put something up. And so ultimately I said, let me start putting products on that time. So we started putting kitchen products and then we put fitness products. And then I met Tony Little and I met Jack LaLanne and George Foreman. And I then went to Discovery. We started just locally in Cincinnati on Discovery Channel in just Cincinnati. We were in 150,000 homes. Then I went to Discovery nationwide, cut a deal to buy the six-hour block permanently for a two-year contract. So I now own six hours a day, 365 days a year for two years. Do you remember at all how much that cost per hour at that point? It was $1,000 a day for six hours. Nationwide. Nationwide. Unbelievable deal because they had no idea what it was worth. They were like, get his money up front. And by the way, a month up front, here's $30,000. Yeah. Hey, that's found money. Yeah. Well, the third year, we were generating tens of millions of dollars off of a $300,000 investment. Because when that two-year contract came up, somebody came along and paid 28 million bucks for what I was paying 365,000 for. It kind of grew what sales were because we would deal with vendors mm. that they would see how many pieces we were selling in a month right. and they were tracking how many times we were running. So they knew what we were selling. They knew what it was worth. And at the end of the day, this is when it started getting competitive. Now, this is now towards the later eighties when competitors came into the market for the first number of years, we did the food saver and kitchen products and we had amazing success. There was really very few people doing this. Yeah, There was some real estate guys doing how to make money in real estate with no money down, kind of like you still see today, you know, but- Who's that guy, Tommy Vu or whatever? It was Tommy Vu, (laughs) there was Ed Beckley, there was Tony Hoffman, there was Dave Del Dotto, if you remember Dave, but the waves crashing behind him in Hawaii. So that was the birth of the industry. And then really where it took off, I had about an $85 million a year business in the US. You know, I had this library of shows and I said, what industry- mirrors mind to give me some education on where I can go with this. I said, well, the movie industry. And what do they do with movies? They take them international. They go to the Cannes Film Festival and they sell the movies into foreign distribution. So a lot of companies say they made all their money in foreign distribution. So I took a little booth out at the Cannes Film Festival and all of a sudden I got all these TV stations from all over the world coming to me wanting to run my Tony Little ab isolator and cruncher and all that kind of stuff. And because all I had to do 
if it was England, we ran it in the same language. If it was in the Philippines, they ran it in English. But if it's in Japan, they dubbed it in Japanese. Yeah. Germany, they dubbed it in German. I've so seen them in took Germany. The same asset and just dubbed it for a thousand bucks in the local market. And boom, all of a sudden, we launched in Japan. We did 80 million our first year in Japan. Wow. So we built that company to 500 million a year in sales. And it was an amazing growth. And this was back now all through the 90s. And then we ended up buying SCNTV.com and got into the internet side. And we owned SCNTV Inc., SCNTV.com. And we were at one point the biggest player in the business. Then Gutty Renker came along and those guys were brilliant marketers, Greg Renker and Bill Gutty. Of course, they do all of the beauty stuff. So skincare and proactive and Stephanie Seymour and Cindy Crawford. And the difference between what they do and what I was doing, when you sell an ab cruncher, and people don't necessarily use it, they're not going to buy a second one. You know what I mean? Or they might, but maybe not the same item, but, right? But not the same item. With Proactive, they put you on auto ship. So Greg Ranker, he had the continuity angle. I was the gadget guy. And in hindsight, if I could do it all over again, which I, I never argue about the path that I took because I'm happy where I ended up, but continuity has built a fabulous business for the Gutty Ranker team. They built billion dollar brands. We had a fabulous run until, you know, the most recent days. Here, if you look at the last five years now, there's been a shift in the marketplace. ESPN has lost 12 million subscribers. There's 50 plus million cord cutters out in the market that have cut the cord from pay TV. And so there's fewer people watching TV, and the millennials are barely watching TV and then go to the younger. I have a 20 year old that doesn't even watch any television. So it's Netflix, it's his iPad, it's his phone and Snapchat and all that. Can you target people on those? I mean, you can pay to target those people. So now what's happened is we've shifted here in the last five years to, you know, more of a digital company. So we still do look at the Asina TV industry as a place to go after we do the digital though. So we used to test on TV we now test on Facebook or Instagram or Google or YouTube or something like that. So a test that used to cost you a couple hundred grand might cost you a few thousand or maybe 30 grand. A couple thousand, 10,000, maybe 20,000 tops where before you're right, we'd spend 200,000 to do a beautiful infomercial, get the media test and find out it didn't work. Now you can find out that there's crickets out there, meaning nobody's ordering for five grand. Okay. So, and by the way, if you spend 5000 on Facebook and you don't get any orders, don't go spend another five and think it's going to change. There's something wrong. You got to change your offer or something, right? So it's kind of the same way on TV, but on TV, you had to go spend 200 grand to shoot the show. Hey, you've made it this far, so fingers off that skip button. And we'll be right back with more from Kevin Harrington after these brief announcements. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. Your support keeps us on the air. So for a list of all the discounts from our amazing sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Here's the conclusion of our interview with Kevin Harrington. 
Is there anything that you look back on now and you laugh at? Like, how did I greenlight this? Like, I'm thinking Pet Rock, which was actually yeah. successful because that's why we know Right, right. I say there was a turning point in my life on one particular project because we started getting caught up in the celebrity buzz. You know, oh, okay, Tony Little, George Foreman, you know, all these. And of course, Guthy Rinker, Cindy Crawford, and any celebrity deal is going to be a hit. So one day, the chubby checker walked in my office. And oh, yeah. He had this product called the twist decisor. And he's like, you know, the problem with fitness is people, they don't like to work out, but if they could listen to music and have fun while they're working out, I've created the solution. It's the twist decisor. So we put $500,000 because it was an idea. We had to mold it, manufacture it, tool it, then produce this $285,000 infomercial by the media. And when I tell you it bombed, I now joke and I say, if a guy named Chubby walks in your office with a fitness product, you should definitely run the other way. Okay? <laughs> so we spent 500 on that one. And that was the turning point that I said, no more. I can't do this anymore because 500 grand is a lot of money to be throwing around on a project. And especially when you look at today's world, you, you know, we talk thousands, 5,000, 10,000. How many projects at $5,000 a piece could I have done on 500 grand's worth of loss? It's a much smarter market today. Just looking back and on that type of product, yeah, it must be kind of like, how did I miss that? But yeah, it shows that even people who really know what they're doing, who are really intelligent, who've been doing it for a long time, have a lot of experience, can still get caught up in that buzz. You see it now with certain types of investments. You see really sophisticated parties getting caught up in hype and buzz, and it's uh, it can get anybody. When you first set foot on the, the Shark Tank set, right? Yeah. you're walking into the set with Mark Burnett and all those yeah. folks. You've got, I don't know how much production of that cost, probably like a million plus dollars. Yes. And you've yeah. got uh, 150 or something people, 10 yeah. times what you've got working on oh, yeah. commercial. Were you intimidated at all? Because you're used to filming in like a converted garage yeah. or something. Right? Yeah, we're used to, con you know, I'd shoot literally $2,000 shows back in the day, right? So we would shoot a $20,000 infomercial still. And I never forget, I walked into the set at the Sony movie lot where they had shot all the big old-time movies. Sure. So Mark Burnett, I'll never forget when he came over to talk to me before, and he talked to each shark. Now, you see, O'Leary and Herchevik were on Dragon's Den in Canada. But uh -huh. There was an English version also, but they lived in Toronto. So they had years of experience of doing the show, which was Mark's brilliant move, starting with two dragons already, right? That knew the format. Now, Mark came over and he said, so Kevin, how you doing? I said, hey, Mark, I'm ready. I'm excited. Before we filmed second one, right? And he said, Kevin, he said, look, you've shot hundreds of infomercials. You're a pro. You do this in your sleep. Now, he says, so what are you thinking right now? I said, well, Mark, I said, 16 cameras, it is a little bit intimidating. Yeah. He says, this is what you got to do. When that person comes walking down and they're going to pitch you, imagine they're in your office and they're pitching you and just give them the exact attention and just the same set of questions that are come to your mind. You do this in your sleep. So don't worry about the cameras. We're getting the angles. We're handling the TV side. You're here to evaluate and ask the question. He put me totally at ease with that. And this is one of Mark Burnett's brilliant aspects is the ability to deal with talent, so to speak, right? And so at the end of the day, I think I was very focused on these pitches and I actually took it very serious because I was investing my own money, right? What I found out, very shortly thereafter was Mark's interest was creating good television, sure. not necessarily good investments. 
because he would come down after we'd shoot five, no deals were done, and we're all looking at each other like we just saw a bunch of garbage. Yeah. And he would say, Sharks, look, nobody invested anything in the last three hours, five hours. What's going on? And this is before we had distribution. I got to be able to tell the networks that we've got some action and some deals. And Millions of dollars are yeah. going through the shark. And we're like, well, Mark, which one of those five would you have invested <laughs> yeah. in? Let's, let's be honest. Yeah. Okay. Right after that, we all wanted the next deal because Mark gave us the little pep talk, right? But we definitely all invested in deals that we would never have wanted to invest in. I was going really? to say that. The unfortunate side of a shark tank, I mean, I would tell my wife, hey, I'm going to shoot shark tank. And this is before it aired. Sure. No one knew what it was. They're like, is that on Discovery Channel, some kind of fishing show? Or what is that? You know, I said, no, it's a business show. And I'm a business shark. She's like, well, how does it work? I said, well, you know, I may invest a million bucks, half a million, you know, whatever. When will we get that back? Well, maybe never. She's like, well, wait a minute. Let me understand this, okay? <laughs> Why are you on this show? Right. right. You know, now when Vanna White's on the Wheel of Fortune, she gets paid to turn the letters. Right. We're paying to be on the show, right? It was a little bit different scenario. And it also, I consider myself as one of the original sharks to have paved the way to get the show to distribution. Sure. And doing some of those early deals that got excitement, and I invested in a cat toilet training system. Yeah, I um, remember that. That one. did millions of dollars in sales. But guess what? That would not have been something if they had walked into my office and said, would you invest in this? That I would have even considered. But I'm a shark on Shark Tank. I'm going to invest in it, but now I'm going to make it successful. I now had to spend the time to go punch it up, get to publicity and do the road show and take her to the Chicago houseware show and go to Walgreens and get it on end caps. And yeah, we built a multi-million dollar business out of that. And it was a great success for everybody. But I was putting a lot of time and effort into deals that ultimately weren't kind of my sweet spot. Sure. Yeah. And I can see that a lot of people who come in there, they even cast certain people where it's just a terrible idea. They've got the formula down now. Oh, Once yeah. every show, there's a, are you kidding you, me? You got one real like crazy situation that you know that nobody would go. These are light up badges that get sewn on your jeans that look like they were straight out of 1989. And <laughs> even the people pitching them are like, I right. would never wear this, you know. Do you have advice for people who might be pitching to any investor? I mean, you've seen a lot of good and you've seen a lot of terrible, terrible pitches. Yes. What do you see that works and what doesn't? Well, a couple of things. I love giving, sharing some good details with the listeners here today because I've taken over 50,000 pitches over the last 30 years and it's only... 1,500 or 2,000 a year. And it's been more in the last, you know, 10 years than it was in the first 20. You know, I have a system, I say in a three-step fashion, you got to have some kind of a little tease and that's to get the attention with some kind of a problem. If you're coming on, whether it's Shark Tank or any investor, you need to get their attention because you got to stand out from all the clutter, understanding that investors are looking at dozens of deals, get their attention with a problem, then please them with the solution to the problem in a unique fashion. And this is important. Kevin O'Leary, right? What does he say? He'll say, does anything else exist in the marketplace that's similar to what you've got? I would ask the same thing too. And so if there's something already identical that's already in Walmart, I mean, might not be interested in right. the deal. Uh, but yeah. if you're unique enough such that nothing else solves the problem in a similar fashion, then I might be very, very interested. And is there any IP or intellectual property around it? So you tease them, you please them, then you seize. And that's the third step. You have to create an irresistible offer. 
much like if you're selling a product on TV, but wait, there's more. If you buy now, you're going to get these two or three. I'm still not done. Right. Okay. Yeah. And you'll see 15 things up there for 10 bucks or something, right? An irresistible offer with an investor has to be an irresistible payback, or maybe it's an accelerated payback, or it's for those that get in early, you're going to get double the equity or something that gives them a buy now incentive. The biggest mistake that people make that are pitching investors is they don't put themselves in the shoe of the investor and they're only focused on themselves, that they need money. They have to understand the investor has to write the check. I'm on both sides because I pitch product to QVC and to Walmart and all kinds of distribution partners that, hey, I've got a great product. I got to pitch it, right? So I've got to tease them, please them and seize them. At the same time, I'm an investor and I'm taking pitches. So I want to know that the person pitching is thinking about me and what's going to get me to write the check. And just one tip that I like to give on this note is a lot of times, one of the big risks of a Shark Tank style deal is think about owning 10% of a private company. You just put a hundred grand up or a million dollars and it's private. When do you get your money back? What's the exit strategy? When I pitch investors, I try to give them an accelerated payback on their investment so that if they put up the money and they're owning 10% of the company, maybe they get 100% of the profits until they get all their money back and then they have a carried interest. So I'm taking care of your problem, Mr. Investor, that maybe you're thinking, well, it's risky and how do I know I'll get my money back? So I try to paint a great get your money back quick kind of a storyline. So so you you mitigate the risk and the security problem that they have. Exactly. Yeah, I think a lot of people, like you said, they don't look at what's in it for the investor as much. They say, you'll make a lot of money. Well, yeah, over 30 years, but they don't think about opportunity cost. I could take the money I'm investing in the cat toilet training product, make an infomercial with it, and for sure make money. I mean, someone will come in, hey, I need 100 grand, I'll pay you 5% on your money. If I'm taking this risk, I need five times my investment, not 5%. Right. 5% is five grand. On 100 grand, I need 500 grand. Investors in these kinds of situations are looking, I mean, I hate to say they're sharks and they cut terrible deals or whatever, but they have other places to put their money in. Look at some of the returns some of these deals have brought back. And if you look at the Ubers and the Facebooks of the world, there's been some pretty nice returns on investment across the transom. A lot of those Shark Tank deals, though, not so good. If you pitch elsewhere, those are some bad deals those people take sometimes. Sometimes, absolutely. Over the years, you've launched 500 products. You mentioned that the most powerful habit or system that you've had has been your network. And that's one thing we're really big on on the Art of Charm at our live programs in LA is networking, creating relationships. How do you go about that? How do you recommend that your team members, the people that you invest with, network and create relationships? Because it's hard for some people to put themselves out there. Sure, great question. So I formed a couple of organizations over the years. And when I was a young entrepreneur back in the mid 80s, and I was doing all these beautiful infomercials, I was hanging out with some cool people, Michael Dell and Ted Leonsis, who ended up becoming number two at AOL, and Stuart Johnson and Vern Harnish, and we all started the Young Entrepreneurs Organization. We put $1,000 each into an account. And YEO has now, as we got older, we changed it to EO. And now it's the Entrepreneurs Organization. It's the largest organization in the world of its kind. And we're in 40 plus countries, 150 cities with thousands of members all over the world. So that was a fabulous networking opportunity for me because 
Today, no matter what city I go to, if I go to Shanghai, I can put out the word, hey, I'm in town, 20 people will show up for lunch. And now, hey, I need a phone center. I need this. I need that. Boom. That's networking at its finest. So I also, with Greg Renker and a few others, started the Electronic Retailing Association in 1990. So EO started as YEO in 1987. We just had our 30th anniversary. And ERA started in 1990. And that's the Electronic Retailing Association. Again, networking in 100 countries of people, fulfillment centers, phone centers, distribution partners all around the world for my products. So I believe sometimes you just have to take the bull by the horn and do it yourself. Create your own groups, your own organizations. But today, I love the LinkedIn's and the Facebook's and the Facebook Lives and creating content and all the kind of digital strategies that are available to entrepreneurs today. So here I am. I've been an entrepreneur for more than 40 years. And my son, who's 29 years old, is always pushing me, Dad, you got to be creating more content. You know, (laughs) it's like, what you mean, shooting videos? That's how this happened, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You got to shoot more videos, do more podcasts, get out there, right? So certainly... There's guys like Gary V and, you know, I think he's got a guy following him around all day long. He's amazing. Right. And so I haven't gone to that extent and it would drive me crazy probably, but God bless. And he's built an amazing business and his success is second to none. But I do a lot of trade shows. You know, I go to dozens of trade shows a year, the consumer electronic show, the hardware show, houseware, fitness shows, the beauty, the toy fair, the golf show. Sometimes I'd like to have a little fun, meet some you know, PGA golfers and hang out because I like to hack it out on the weekend sometimes there too. An entrepreneur can never stop networking. It's so important to be able to get out there, press the flesh. I go to trade shows. I hit the media rooms and and talk to the media. I go to the new product showcases and I network with people that I've been doing business with for years. And I find, you know, any show I go to, I'm going to come out of there with some new business. That makes sense. I think a lot of people who run and start businesses think, I got to keep my head down. I've only been doing this for a few years. I've got to focus on my prototype, my sales guys, my products, my whatever. Networking is one of those. I'll do that as soon as I, and then fill in the blank. And a lot of times it's an excuse right. to, well, I'm an introvert, so I got a medical excuse to not network. And it just doesn't work. It right. hurt you long-term. Exactly. It's got to be part of your business and marketing plan. Yeah. And if you're an introvert and you think you can't do it, what do you recommend for those people? I'll be honest with you. I think I've used coaches in my life across various spectrums. I've had, you know, operational coaches, speaking coaches, um, marketing coaches. I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years in paying experts to give me good advice. If you're an introvert, get somebody to coach you on how to get out of that shell a little bit and get out there and continue to, to network. I'll give you a good example. You know, somebody said, you know, you got to go start speaking. And so it was kind of easy after coming off Shark Tank, you know, all people didn't mind hearing from me, but you can speak smart. So I go to the Chamber of Commerce and I'd speak. And then the Chamber of Commerce said, you know, Kevin, we do an annual conference here in Tampa, Florida, where 27 chambers from the whole state come. Would you like to speak at that event? And so now I'm speaking to 27 chambers. And at the end, hey, if you'd like for me to come to your local chamber, of course, there's a fee involved, right? right? Just leave some notes at the end here and I'll get back to you. Well, I picked up five speaking gigs out of that one speech. So there's smart ways to network. And, you know, I think if an introvert knew that they could go and speak to 27 chambers at one shot, you know, would you be interested? These are the things that coaches might be able to help you with to 
make it smart so that you don't have to go spend a week in Las Vegas at the CES show, maybe get there for a day or two and hit the highlights. Right, so you end up saving more time, which of course any entrepreneur knows time is money, especially when you're talking about your business. And it can be fun, it can be effective. Instead of standing in the corner at a CES show for a week, you can, like you said, press the flesh in an effective way for two days, and then it's over quicker, if that makes you feel better. <laughs> Work smarter. Exactly. Kevin, yeah. thank you so much. I know you gotta run, you gotta run the LA traffic. Great to be here, LA, crazy uh, week this week, but yeah. fantastic uh, sharing some time with you. Great interviews, and thank you so much. Thank you. This was a fun one for me. I've known Kevin for a while. Really glad to get him on the show, finally, after a lot of logistics. Great big thank you, of course, to Kevin Harrington. We'll link to some of the resources for him in the show notes, as always. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank him on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes. And tweet at me your number one takeaway here today from Kevin Harrington. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. And I'm also on Instagram, at Jordan Harbinger. As mentioned earlier, we've got that worksheet for today's episode, so you can make sure you understand everything that we talked about, solidify those takeaways that you got here from Kevin today on The Art of Charm. That is linked in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast in the show notes for the episode for this show. Also, we've got the AOC Challenge. I want to encourage you all to join that if you want to improve your networking and connection skills, inspire those around you to develop personal and professional relationships with you either for your personal life or for your business if you're an entrepreneur. That's all at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, and it's free. It's for men and women. It's a fun way to get the ball rolling, get some forward momentum. Business owner, non-business owner, doesn't matter. You'll learn to apply the things you're learning here on the show to your life every single day. And we'll send you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show with some great practical stuff ready to apply right out of the box. Body language, nonverbal communication, attraction, negotiation, persuasion, networking and influence strategies, and everything else that we teach here on the show and at our live programs in Los Angeles at our school here at The Art of Charm. This will make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's all at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. And I am your host, Jordan Harbinger. If you can think of anyone who might benefit from the episode you've just heard, please pay us the highest compliment and pay it forward by sharing this episode with that person. It only takes a moment and great ideas are meant to be shared. So share the show with your friends and enemies. Stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.